Hi, everybody. I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. This week, we're talking about fandom. For decades, fans have expressed their love of Broadway by stage-dooring, repeatedly attending the same show, dressing up as their favorite Broadway characters, and so much more. We'll take a look at who these Broadway superfans are, and how their fandom manifests itself. Then, we'll dive into how and why we as industry players should cultivate and foster the community of superfans around our shows. To do this, we'll talk to Mark Dooley, who has been studying theater fandom for years as a documentary filmmaker. Then, Melissa Anelli, the executive director of BroadwayCon, will talk to us about her experience in creating communities around fandom. Finally, we'll talk to Laura Haywood of laurahaywoodmedia.com and at BroadwayGirlNYC about the power of fandom and how we can harness this power to benefit our shows. Now, before we get to that, I want to talk briefly about the Tony Awards. In case you don't already know, I'm a little bit obsessed with the Tonys and with trying to predict the outcome of nominations and of wins. For the past three years, I've covered the Tony race on my blog at www.ohenryproductions.com, and for each of those years, my predictions have been more accurate than any other publication on Broadway. I'm going to be bringing that coverage to the O'Henry Report, and we're going to be dissecting the Tony races in detail starting in the spring. But for now, I just wanted to talk a bit about the big one, Best Musical. There are only seven productions announced for this season which are eligible for Best Musical. Prince of Broadway, The Band's Visit, SpongeBob SquarePants, Escape to Margaritaville, Frozen, Mean Girls, and Summer, the Donna Summer Musical. Prince of Broadway has already been closed for a while and was a review, so both of those indicate it won't get a nod. Assuming nothing else lands on Broadway before the eligibility cutoff on April 26th, that leaves six musicals vying for four nomination slots. So it's shaping up to be a fun permutation of a very common best musical setup. And that is The Little Engine That Could versus The Big Commercial Musical, right? Fun Home versus An American in Paris. Spring Awakening versus Mary Poppins. The difference is that this year, The Band's Visit is the small show, but also the show that's been expected to dominate at the Tonys because it won almost every off-Broadway award last year. So instead of the little engine that could, we have this little engine that really probably will. And that puts bigger shows like Frozen and Mean Girls in a better position entering the Tony race, as they will be evaluated as possible underdogs instead of the big juggernaut musicals that they really are. All of my nomination predictions are up on my blog, and as the year progresses and I see more theater, I update my predictions there. So you can go there for the most up-to-date data, but more on that here on the O'Henry Report in the spring. So let's get back to fandom. A few weeks ago, Mark Dooley's film, Repeat Attenders, had its premiere at America's largest documentary festival, Doc NYC. So 
Super fandom is expressed in a lot of ways, but the focus of your film, Mark, which is titled Repeat Attenders, is, well, about uh, people who repeatedly attend a show. So, first things first, what is a repeat attender? How do you define repeat attenders? There are repeat attenders who see the same show once a week, or they see it every couple of weeks. Uh, the fan in the film, who see, she sees Les Mis every fortnight, and she's been doing that for over 20 years. Wow. So she spent quite a bit of cash and quite a bit of time. Um, and so some people repeat attend a show that uh, isn't a long-running show, so they'll see the same show as much as they possibly can. So sort of three, four, five times a week so that they can get it in as <laughs> get their fix as much as they can before the show closes. Um, so it, it's, a, it seems to be a regular, at least once a week kind of situation for the longer running shows and the, the, the repeat attenders with big numbers. And can you give us a sense of just how big those numbers are? Um, yeah, I guess I, what I've focused on specifically, because the fandom is so broad, there are so many different levels of fans and varieties of fans. I guess for me, repeat attenders would be people that have seen the same show, say, over over 20 times, perhaps, as a general rule. Uh, because, I mean, that is, you know, that seeing it quite a lot of times compared to, you know, most shows that most people – I mean, I've seen some shows six, seven or eight times. I probably can't really, you know, over – it's – I'd say about 20 is about right. But, I mean, people in the film, it's, it's very common to be in the hundreds and over a thousands and, you know, those sort of numbers. They wow. are big, big numbers. Yeah. I mean, this is the – this is the – these are the biggest numbers in the world for um, people that have seen shows. So, wow! I mean, that's really insane. Because when I think about that, I think about even a show that I'm working on, and you know, I've seen it in rehearsals, I've seen it in tech, I've seen it in previews. Um, even a show that I'm actually working on, that I'm producing, a repeat attender, a super fan of that show, probably has seen it more than me. And so uh, that starts to get me thinking that maybe I'm onto something here. Maybe we're, when we set out to explore how industry can learn from these fans, uh, the first answer is that they may know the show better than we do. So I want to get a better idea of who these people are, who these super fans are. Melissa Anelli is the executive director of BroadwayCon, which is an annual convention of Broadway fans that takes place this year from January 26th to January 28th at the Jacob Javits Convention Center. Melissa, you run a convention in New York for fans of an industry that exists exclusively in New York, but obviously there are theater fans all over the world. So are Broadway con attendees mostly New Yorkers or do you have people who come into town for the conference? Well, it's about 70% outside of New York, which was surprising to us. We thought it would be the other way around. Uh, and it's, it's, I, I can't remember the exact stat right now, but there's a significant portion that come from all over the place. I mean, we've had people from Japan. We've had people from Singapore. We've had, we've had a 
countries that I couldn't even believe were on were on the list. Um, it is primarily the United States. It's, I think it's like seventy five or, or eighty or even even higher than that of the United States. Uh, but a lot of people come in from out of town because it's the only way to really get a full glimpse of a full season of Broadway as a fan and be able to meet other fans. That's something that we put a lot of focus on um, fans being able to meet other people like them and make those connections, have a chance to see, to see everything that's available in a current season in, in one stop. So yeah, yeah, they come from all over. Wow. And so then I'm interested in sort of other demographic makeup. So we know that the majority demographic for Broadway ticket buyers is 45 plus females. Sure. What do the demographics of the Broadway con audience look like? My instinct tells me that it might be quite different. Yeah, it's very different. I, I believe we are – well, I know that we're about 80% female, but the age is much different. It's 50%, I think, below 35 Wow. Which is astonishing yeah. for a Broadway. Yeah. It's, we, when we opened this, we said we weren't sure, you know, is this going to look like the general Broadway audience? And we were kind of internally bracing for dealing with an audience that we didn't know very much about, but that has not been the case. It's been, it's because BroadwayCon is a place to be really passionate and that speaks a lot to a, to a young audience. We do try and make sure there is something there for, for all ages and that it is programming that, that, is ageless but um it has really connected with the younger audience and that makes us really happy so on top of being the executive director at broadway con you're also the ceo of mischief management where you put together conventions for fans of various content various mediums and you have leaky con for harry potter fans which is named after the leaky cauldron uh con of thrones alien con so your expertise in cultivating these communities of fans spreads beyond theater um which is really fascinating to me and and something that i'd like to talk about so how do these demographics that you've just described for broadway con compare with the other conventions that you run I'll say that to date, Mischief Management has not produced an event that has had a majority of men. It is they have all they are all majority female, and that people tell me consistently is and and I see consistently in the convention world is not usually the case. Um, yeah, it's and and that's and most of that is seventy to eighty percent. AlienCon is the only one that's about, uh, that's like a little bit over fifty, but that's because it's an entirely different audience. That's like a whole sure. different audience than we're than we're um, usually tapping into. But it's no, that's it's all, it is all very female driven. Which what about age? Yeah. Is uh, or sorry, skew, I, if you were gonna no, say no, that's fine. We skew younger. We skew. Um, LeakyCon is even younger than BroadwayCon. LeakyCon tends to be fifty uh, percent under twenty five, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is something new for us as well. This new this LeakyCon that we just opened tickets for in Dallas. It's going to be in August in Dallas. That one, it's sold out in a day, and I don't, we don't know mm-hmm. what's <laughs> what's going on. There. We're very, very surprised and very pleased. But that is our, it is our youngest event. Well, in that period to date, that's sort of fascinating to me. Um, just to hop off Broadway for one second, because a lot of people who grew up reading Harry Potter are my age. Uh, I'm sort of in that, you know, prime. Uh, the first book came out when I was in elementary school age range, and that means that they have to be at least 25. Yeah. So to say that you're seeing an average of 25, that 50% of your audience, maybe even more this year, is below 25, uh, there's something going on here. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I don't know if you have an indication of what that is. But in other words, 
between what we just learned about Broadway Con and what we learned about Leaky Con, it's clear that younger people are more likely to attend and engage in fandom, at least in your world, in, in conventions, even though they are less likely to be the consumers of the medium that the conference celebrates. I think a lot of it has to do with the ability to spend time and energy in in your in your passions the way you really can at that age bracket. A lot of it with the LeakyCon audience specifically, like this is now families, people who grew up with it now are bringing their kids, right. which is just yeah. mind-blowing to us. Um, a lot of those demographics sort of mirror, get mirrored at BroadwayCon because of that same thing. Mothers bring their kids a lot at BroadwayCon. Um, so, so there's that. Um, yeah, I think the when you're in that age range, you have all this unbridled passion and you're not 100% sure where it's going to go, but you want to follow it. And these events give the opportunity to do that. Mark, in your experience capturing material for the film, do you have a sense of why people become repeat attenders of a show? Uh, are there any like demographic or psychographic trends that, that you've spotted um, that can point to why someone develops an obsession with returning to the same show over and over again? It's really varied. And I think that's the, that's the, been the most interesting, you know, part of my experience connecting with the fans and the fandom of musical theater is that there really isn't one answer as to why people connect with a show and stay with a show and follow it for, you know, most of their lives or for a really long time. Sometimes it's because a particular show really resonates with them and so they really want to re-experience that when they go and see the show again. Sometimes it is that they uh, they just find themselves in a particular time of their life where they need that message to be told to them uh, on a regular basis. It's it's really varied and that's what has been so interesting for me and uh, I did think that there would just be one answer to that question. Why do they, why do the fans repeat attend shows? And there isn't one answer because we're all different and we all do things for different reasons. And yeah, I found that, I found that to be fairly true. So with all those differences in the type of people who become a super fan of a show, the film also highlights that there are many differences in the way that people express their fandom. So one of which is obviously seeing the show over and over again, but uh, how else do superfans express their love of a show? Yeah, there, there are multiple ways people express their love for a particular show or even just musical theater in itself. Uh, some, people, some people are travelers. So uh, I know one particular fan from Australia who, you know, he travels to... Broadway and the West End at least once a year and sort of, you know, it's that fitting in how many shows in three weeks as possible. Um, and uh, there are people that do dress up, so they really, they don't really repeat attend the show or they'll, they'll see it, you know, say 30 or 40 times, which in the repeat attendance world is not that huge, but they their thing is costuming or, uh, you know, you know, doing the makeup for a particular show, Cats is very big for that, um, just because of the you know the amazing makeup that's done and the costuming that is kind of it's uh, achievable for most people to make a, a Cats costume um, following the sort of the show's designs. 
yeah, so people cosplay, people collect merchandise, and uh, yeah, there are there are a few different ways. Uh, oh, yeah, there are a lot of people that are um, amazing artists, so they will do uh, fan art for a particular show or multiple shows. There are people that do craft as well, so they'll actually sell items that are themed on a show that they love. So it's a re- it's a it's very much a an a bit of a an underworld, but it's it's quite huge. It's just not really well that that well known. Melissa, what are some of the ways that you've seen fandom manifest itself at BroadwayCon? What are these fans doing to show just how much they love Broadway? Oh, I love cosplay. I don't know if you've seen the cosplay that's happened at BroadwayCon. One of the things we were so excited about going into the first BroadwayCon is to see what the cosplay would be like. <laughs> And man, is it amazing. We have these sisters or these friends, I guess, that come and they, they play the sisters from Sideshow every year. Mm-hmm. There's always a ton of Hamilton characters. There's always a ton of people in green outfits, but then green makeup. But then you have people from a lot of – somebody was dressed as a playbill last year. <laughs> somebody – you know, people take – people really get into the spirit of it. And I think we're really lucky because we're able to kind of lead that fandom down that road because they haven't had a place to do this before, right. you know? And so we get to be part of the creation of all that, which is awesome. Um, what what else? The, the people are showing. The, oh, well, we have also have Star to Be. Do you know about Star to Be? I don't know about Star to Be. Star to Be is our uh, uh, talent show. Essentially, we we put out a call for amateur amateur uh, performers, and they send in some my God, some amazing things. And um, we have professionals. Do, do we get it down to semifinals through a, through a, a, a panel of judges, and then at the finals at the event we have a panel of professionals choose a winner. And so last year, oh man, there's a video online I could send you the link to that our, our winner from last year was so phenomenal, and the talent's only getting more competitive. Mark, anyone who's been walking around Times Square at around the time that uh, shows are ending knows uh, will have seen people stage dooring or standing outside the theater exit waiting for their favorite star to leave and to sign their playbill and take a picture. I assume that's something that a lot of repeat attenders do as well. Yes, yeah, some people, repeat attenders will, they will do the stage door and they will try and connect with the actors and, you know, they may get to know them after a while because they see them so frequently. You know, essentially an actor is leaving their place of work so if you walked out of your office and saw the same person uh you know in the foyer of your building you would probably say hi you know uh the the third time and then maybe the 10th time you might ask what their name is or you know so so they you know they get to connect to the actors in that sense and then there's a social media aspect as well of course um a lot of fans also you know, provide gifts and food and things like that to the people. In the, you know, it, it's a way to to show their love for the show in another with another step up. So it's they, you know, they buy their ticket and they, you know, enjoy the performance, and they just feel like they just want to be connected a little bit more than most people that get to see the show. And this sort of relationship that can form between fans and actors at the stage door directly led to the creation of BroadwayCon. What had happened is that I have a, a longtime friend, Anthony Rapp, who is, I've known him since I'm 16 years old, and we we met because I used to sleep outside the stage door for Rent, you know, to go see Rent back in the back in 1996. I was, I was, I was part of that original uh, 
rushing group back before that was just the thing you did. Uh, so Anthony, because of his savviness, we, we were able to be friends with him, you know, like write him emails and whatever. And for some reason, we just kept up in touch over the years and a friendship developed. Uh, and I had been telling him for years what LeakyCon was like. And he, you know, he would see my pictures and he would see what cool things we were creating. And we had machinated a way for him to go in 2013. And a month later, when Anthony was at LeakyCon in Portland, uh, we, we had, I hadn't said anything to him. We waited until he finally saw what it is we do and why it's good and why it's different. And when the event was over, we turned around to him and said, so now you see what we do we want to do this for Broadway. What do you think? And he said, whatever you need, I'm in. And that was it. And the next month I started looking at venues. That's such an amazing story. And what's so cool about that is that it speaks to the power of fandom to create and to benefit our industry. And that's what I want to explore, right? Broadway con itself was born out of Melissa's fandom. A lot has changed since the early days of rent when Melissa met Anthony, and one of the most important ways that relates to fandom is the advent of social media. To help us explore how social media factors into this equation, I want to bring in Laura Haywood of laurahaywoodmedia.com. Laura, I want to start by talking a bit about how you got where you are today, because you went from a Broadway fan who was tweeting anonymously with the handle at BroadwayGirlNYC to someone who has built this media brand at LauraHaywoodMedia.com. And you're now hosting online interviews with stars. You're consulting productions on social media. You recently even had your own themed concert at 54 Below. So in a way, you are a case study on the power of fandom because you went from fan to brand. And if you excuse how corny that sounds, uh, that that's sort of what we want to figure out how to do here is harness that power from fans and that love of fans into something actionable that we can do. <laughs> OK, uh, yeah. So I am best known for my social media work. Uh, at least historically, I have best been best known in the theater world for my social media uh, under the username Broadway Girl NYC, which I ran anonymously for six years until February of 2015, when I was invited to TEDx Broadway to do a live in-person reveal as the person who had been running this anonymous account. Um, I, while I was running Broadway Girl anonymously, I was also a professional radio personality with Sirius XM, where I worked for 10 years, both on the air and as the director of talent relations, so in a talent booking capacity. Uh, and before that, I was a radio personality in San Francisco in everything from sports talk to hip hop to news um, and everything in between. So I was living kind of a double identity and once I revealed myself as the person who had been writing the Broadway Girl NYC content, I was able to kind of combine those two identities and start working as a broadcaster and an interviewer, specifically in the Broadway sphere, with my uh, large social media audience sort of lending me credence in that Broadway sphere. And the the content that you were that you were putting out there on Twitter early on was really, I think you just said it, sort of geeking out about Broadway, right? It was it was sort of mm -hmm. embracing the Broadway fan in you um, and just sharing your experience uh, going to shows or reading about shows with others who, who, as it turned out and as is 
proven by the fact that you now have over 34,000 followers on, on Twitter alone. These people also wanted to geek out and, and have an outlet of expression or reacted really well to someone expressing how much of a fan they were. Yeah, I absolutely, uh, I realized early on that this was an aspirational character that I was creating, definitely based on me and my real experiences. But I wanted people who uh, maybe weren't able to come to New York or those in New York who weren't able to go to the theater as often as I was. I wanted them to be like, man, if I had access to all those shows, this is what I would be doing. If I could live in New York, I'd be going to the theater every night. And I was seeing so much negativity around fandom uh, with people getting competitive about who had seen shows more times or who was more of a real fan, whatever that means. Um, and, you know, or complaining about things like when people didn't come out of the stage door. And I thought, geez, there are people who would give anything to just be in the audience, to be in the last row of a show with an understudy who didn't come out the stage door. You know, I, I want to focus on being grateful for what I do have as opposed to, for, you know, focusing on the so much of the negative energy that I was seeing around the community in the and people really gravitated towards that. Laura, between my conversations with you and with Mark and Melissa, we've gotten a very good sense of what fans do to express their fandom. But what we still haven't talked that much about is what we do, or rather can do, as industry to facilitate that. And you have experience as a social media consultant working for some shows and talent. So you have experience on both sides of the aisle, as a fan and as a production consultant. Let's talk about what you see as ways that we can be better as theater makers at tapping into that energy that you first tapped into as Broadway Girl NYC to really benefit our shows by cultivating this experience. I'm so glad that you are talking about this because I really think that the number one piece of my identity that I, I get really like warm and fuzzy about is calling myself an audience advocate. I think so often theater fans and audiences are considered dollar signs. They're customers. They're not treated as collaborators. But if you talk to any actor, specifically any actor who's done a one-man show, and you know you ask them, isn't it hard to be up there by yourself? They always say the same thing. They say, the audience is my scene partner. I'm not there alone. And I think that if producers, marketing companies, publicists, uh, you know, the entire theater making community could really in their hearts, not just in their marketing plans, but in their hearts, see audience members as crucial collaborators, their mindsets would shift around how to treat fans. I am especially excited for this year's Broadway Con because this year, Melissa, you're doing something new, which is that on January 25th, the day before the Broadway Con proper kicks off, you're hosting Broadway Con Industry Day, which is a full day dedicated to exploring the questions that I'm asking in this episode. What can we do as industry to help foster the fan experience? So let's start with that. What are ways that you see the industry either excelling at or failing to connect uh, with the community of fans. So this question is exactly why we started the industry day, because we want to really capitalize 
um, for in, for the industry on on this this energy that exists inside this sphere and how and what is best to how it's best to take advantage of that because that benefits everybody. It's not not just people who produce shows, but it's people who write shows and it's people who see shows and it's people. It, it, everybody is made better by understanding the thing that's at the core of the fandom. And I think what's happening now is that people are trying to understand and leverage it, but they rightfully don't a hundred percent know what the best road is and how do we, how do you understand it? How do you get behind something like the incredible marketing success of Dear Evan Hansen? Like the way they connected with their audience was beyond, beyond phenomenal. Um, or the, the capture the tail, the tiger by the tail, kind of viral, viral after viral after viral hit of, Ma- of Hamilton. The, the, the content was at the core, but there's no doubt that the things they did to honor the way the fandom was reacting to it is part of what makes it such an enormous blockbuster success story. Um, and what, what are the cues? What are the things that are, that fans can spot from a mile away are artificial? Cause I'm telling you the one thing I know the most in my bones about fandom from I've now been working in fandom for close to 20 years, fans can spot artifice a mile away. They can see it. They can smell it. You can't get things over on fans. So how do you do that hard thing, which is find the, the real genuine way to connect with them. That's going to light them up. And then also has the byproduct of really serving your, your event. That, these are, these are your event, your show. These are the questions that we're trying to get answered through an incredible array of professionals and artists and stuff that's going to, that, that um, situation is curating. We just heard from Melissa about how important authenticity is when engaging with fans and you, Laura, are so, so good at expressing this authentic passion for theater in every tweet that you write, in any, in, in every interview that you host. Um, what can we learn from that about how we engage with our audience? Authenticity is such a buzzword, but it really, when it's, when it's authentic authenticity, as opposed to manufactured authenticity, which should be uh, an oxymoron, but somehow isn't because people are trying to manufacture it all the time. But when it really is true authenticity, uh, it, it, it attracts passion. It attracts enthusiasm. And, uh, and I think that that's what Dear Evan Hansen and their fan day and the, and ham for ham in particular really did. It was, it was considered a gift. Uh, ha- let's just talk about ham for ham. So women. Well, Miranda didn't say, Ooh, you know, what would be great is we, we need to come up with something that, that has a lot of buzz. Let's do this thing. It'll be annoying, but we'll just grit our teeth and do it. We'll go out and do a free show in the street every day for two months. And, Maybe that'll help us build some buzz. It was the opposite of that. They said, we want to give something back. We're not going to expect anything from it. It's going to be a gift to the people who have already signed on, who have already, you know, expressed an interest in Hamilton. Mark, you've had experience with so many super fans uh, and so many people who continue to buy a a ticket and then another ticket and then another ticket to the same show. What can we do as an industry to help foster and cultivate the community of super fans, of repeated tenders, and make it uh, and benefit our industry at the end? 
I think where the the industry could embrace the fans a bit more is by you know having having special events and you know fan days and fan performance which which happens a lot and and uh you know they are starting to reach out a bit more and having very specific celebrations of the fans um that's that's a really great step towards connecting with with these groups with the repeat attenders i find it a little bit strange that there isn't a rewards program uh for each show um with everything else we do in life there's there's a reward for you know coming back and repeat um repeat custom you you buy a coffee and you get the 10th one free you know but you buy your 400th ticket to a show and you get nothing you know it's it's a strange uh it's a strange thing not to take advantage of and that's something that I definitely, over the process of the film coming out and being released and you know, distribution and getting bigger and reaching more of the fans, I certainly want to be seen as uh, repeat attenders of the film being seen as something that can help with that, that, uh, you know, that special discounts or special events or special, you know, performances can be sent out to you know i have a database of uh of repeat attenders and you know they're they're people that will do anything for their show so whether that's promoting it for you uh, you know um or you know just speaking about it with their own social circles they there is a worth there is definitely worth in connecting with them and seeing more of that happen is fantastic but i think there's there is a lot more that can be done did any of the repeat attenders that you talked to have a relationship with the box office uh, and access to some sort of sales promotion since they were buying tickets in bulk, more or less, to, to make exercising their passion any cheaper? There was a reward uh, program for once. And it was, it was, you know, sort of playing on, you know, don't just see it once, see it more than once kind of thing. (laughs) And it was great. It was fantastic. And when I was at the box office, I went, I I said to them, this is, this is great. This is, this may get someone to buy a ticket that wasn't necessarily going to buy one that week, but they felt like they were being sort of uh, looked after and, and thought about and, and cared about. And yeah, I, I think. The productions are doing a lot, but there's a lot more that could be done. Was that once promotion the only time that you've seen a sales promotion like this? Yeah, that's the that's the only one I've ever come across, and um, and I think there definitely needs to be more of it. There's uh, these people that are, especially the repeat attenders that have seen, you know, they see the show over a hundred times, or you know, you know, plus, um, they are little ambassadors for the show. They're the ones that are in the box office queue talking to the people in front and behind or, you know, they're, they're in the, the rush queue talking about the show and how many times they've seen it. And just the fact that they're saying that they've seen this show a hundred times says to the person that's waiting to buy a ticket, this is a really great show and it's worth seeing a hundred times. So, right, it's <laughs> worth the price of a hundred tickets apparently. Exactly. So there, And we talk about in the industry – about how important word of mouth is, and there's no there's no no better thing than you know word of mouth and selling tickets to a show. The repeat attenders are your word of mouth people that you can speak to them directly because they want to hear from the show, and they will absolutely get people to buy tickets that you cannot connect with. So it's it's something that 
should be embraced more and uh you know the, the fans will be will be open and ready for it they want to spend their cash on the show there's no, there's no denying that so you know even if you're if, if your 50th ticket you get a a limited edition you know fan hat or something like it doesn't matter what it is you know something that costs very little to make or produce that will mean that will mean the world to that fan right and they will they will talk to 20 people about it right so it's it's that if word of mouth is seen as being the ultimate way of marketing and promoting a show you the repeat attenders are the ones that can help you do that yeah and i, I think a lot of other industries have, have figured that out right if, if i patron the same restaurant you know over and over again i you know will end up sometimes getting a free you know course or a drink from from you know management mm-hmm. or a chef so I, I think it's a sort of a model that we can learn from once we embrace the idea that there are people who are you know frequenting our our shows uh, absolutely i mean even even just a ticket to bring someone with you or to a discount for someone to you know they're going to repeat the ten, repeat attend the show anyway so right. giving them a not a two for one i mean the, these shows are expensive they're expensive to make and to run that's that's acknowledged and understood but a, you know a buy buy one ticket and get another one half price or you know or buy two tickets and you get a drink and a program or something like that that will get these repeat attenders not just to come back on their own but to bring someone with them and then that person brings someone with them next time i mean it's that's how it works. You know, it's, it's very, it's very simple, but it's something that I think, you know, could, there could be more of it for sure. Laura, I think one of the things that prevents theater makers and producers from investing in the fan experience is that they feel like these are the people who are buying the tickets to the show anyway. Um, why, spend money doing that instead of spending money on audience acquisition. What do you say to people who, who might have that objection? This is, this is very like industry jargon from my radio days, but, but we say super serve the existing audience, which means give away a, a certain level of entertainment, give a gift to the people who have already bought in. I think that what I see is that anybody trying to build an audience is paying attention to who they don't have yet, as opposed to giving more to the people who are already buying their tickets. It's like if you have some kids who are lining up every Saturday morning for your rush line, why do you want to buy them pizza? Why would you spend your money giving them pizza? They're already lining up every week. But what happens is that when the marketing department or the producers or the actors or the creatives or whoever sends pizza out to the kids waiting in the snow for the 10th Saturday in a row to get rush tickets is that those kids will post to social media because they feel loved back by this entity that they have loved so hard. And what is the cost of a few pizzas, right? It's like nothing. But when their friends and family and schoolmates and peers see how excited they are, that builds community and they go, oh man, Jenny's having so much fun with this show. Maybe when we go to New York next year, we should try to see that show. Okay, so when I talked to Mark about this, he he gave some really great ideas about how to 
treat uh, and how to cultivate engagement in his group of repeat attenders, right, which are people who are buying tickets. But now what you just talked about, uh, though ringing really true, I think brings up another problem that that people have with engaging in with their fan base. And that goes all the way back to what we learned from Melissa in the very beginning of this conversation, which is that young people are the majority group that have the passion and energy to express towards Broadway. And so, yes, we can super serve the, the, the line of college kids that are, that are outside the box office window lining up for uh, lottery tickets. But if our main consumers are a very different demographic, why target, why invest resources in these fans who, right, those, the, the, the 10 lottery tickets we can give out, the 10 rush tickets we can give out is gonna make us 200 bucks total. So what can you say to people who feel this way, who don't think that they're going to get a return on that investment? I talk a lot about this hypothetical middle America couple who has a teenage neighbor. And uh, that let's say that neighbor loves Wicked and dresses up as Elphaba for Halloween and plays the cast album all the time. But this teenage neighbor will never get to New York and may never be able to see a regional production. But she feels like that's her show. She identifies with it so much. If we send that girl a free T-shirt from Wicked, she's going to wear it everywhere she goes. And then her middle-aged neighbors are going to come to New York for a weekend. And they're going to go, oh, we need to go see Wicked because, because we know about it and we associate it with this person in our community. And they might not have found out about that if they'd gotten a flyer in the mail they might have, in fact, developed a bad feeling about the show if they were getting a bunch of spam calls or junk mail. But because they associate it with somebody they care about, then they seek it out in a passionate, authentic way. And so I think that what Ham for Ham does or for these fan days that some of the shows have done um, or even something like the very first occasion of this I ever saw was with Rock of Ages at the very beginning of, of theater and Twitter intersecting, they did something called a tweet up where they just like got a bunch of appetizers and a drink special at a theater district bar and had people come and hang out with the cast. It did not include tickets to the show, but it got people got to meet the stars of the show and feel like they were part of it. And it was like, these were already people who loved the show who were already buying tickets. But because we were all on social media, we all shared it and our communities heard about it. I always want to promote a show that makes me feel like I am important to them. And not just because I have 35,000 Twitter followers, but because I have made an investment. I might not have a million dollars to invest but I've invested my time. I've invested the money I do have. And mostly I've just invested my passion and my heart. And I think that's as important an investment as someone who writes a check. And I think it would really do the producers and creatives and everybody else really well to understand the investment that the fans are making. And that's so true. It's like, I think in some cases, fans who give the most of their hearts and souls to the shows they love end up having an unrequited love affair. You give them a little bit back in a real authentic way. And 
th- like their dedication will will increase infinitely. Yeah, I, the, the the examples you give are just, and the way you rephrase a lot of this is is just hitting the nail on the head. You know, Melissa spoke a lot about fans just knowing in, when you're not being authentic that you know it yeah. really has a place for and. And, you know, and, and Mark was talking a lot about sort of, you know, the, that gift that's given, right? Send the t-shirt. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, his film is about repeated tenders. It's like, give them a hat the 50th time they come, right? Yeah. And like, what does that cost you? This is something that we, we talked about. Like I said, I, my, I have a whole presentation on social media that is basically things I learned from broadcasting, from radio that can be, uh, like applied to social media. Sure. Basically everything I learned about social media. Everything I needed to know about social media, I learned from radio. And we do. We talk about the, t- the free T-shirt that a radio station gives out. Do you give it to the person who already listens to your station 12 hours a day? Or do you give it to the person you're trying to recruit? Well, you might think you give it to the person you're trying to recruit to win them over. But they're going to throw that T-shirt in a bottom drawer and it's mm-hmm. never going to see the light of day. Whereas the person who already loves you is going to wear it like a billboard. And every person they love is going to see it. And then those people are going to say, even if it's subconsciously or they don't really realize it, they're going to associate that radio station or that Broadway show with someone they care about. And that's how community is built through people we love, not through marketing, not through advertising and not through cheap gifts because it's a cheap t-shirt. It's a ploy if you give it to the person who is not already opted in, but it's an act of love. If you give it to the person who has opted in, Always prioritize the act of love over the cheap ploy. It's going to cost you the same. Well, you know, I brought up the restaurant industry before, and now when you bring up radio, it just reminds me other people have figured this out for us, right? Like there are industries where people get this, and we need to learn from it. There are these people who are actively engaging with our brands in some way, whether it's through actual cash, cash purchases playing the album over and over again or, you know, whatever it is um, that, you know, allowing them to do that more and give them a, a bigger, right? Like I, we talk a lot about word of mouth, uh, you know, and, and buzz in this industry. And, and yet um, those ad dollars that are going towards giving the, the, the non-purchasing, you know, a new person the T-shirt, they won't create word of mouth like like the person that already is on the soapbox, you know, preaching uh, the love. I, I think those are all, you know, just uh, there are lessons that I'm going to take with me on my next show for sure. Well, you know, like when you and I first met was when you were working on uh, witness Uganda slash invisible thread. And I basically, I fell in love so hard with that show that I, I bum rushed you. And I was like, look, I don't have a check to write. I don't have any money, but I want to give you the resources that I have in terms of whatever that is, I'm going to just love this show so hard that it continues living. And, you know, there are different kinds of currency. And I think that when you can inspire, when you have work that inspires people to say, I don't have much, but what I've got, I want to give you, whether it's financial or whether it's not, you need to keep those people close. And you and your team on that show did such a good job of embracing me and not saying like, sorry, we have a XYZ dollar amount minimum. You just you embraced me and you were, and you and the composers and said to me immediately, you're part of our family now from the start. And that made me want to double down and give even more than I thought I had in the first place. So where do we go from here? 
let's spread the love and give the gifts and show our fans who love our show so much that we love them back. Let's throw special fan days and invite fans to special events. Let's run sales promotions for our repeat attenders and give them a free hat or a free drink every once in a while. They've earned it. Super serve your audience. Send free pizza to your rush line. Send free t-shirts to your 13-year-old superfan in Missouri. And be authentic while you do it. Let's continue this conversation at BrawlyCon Industry Day on January 25th. And at our lunch meetings tomorrow and dinner next month. Because it's so easy to do the things that these experts in fandom are telling us we should do. And they will help so much. Thank you for listening to the O'Henry Report. If you have any questions from previous episodes or ideas for the next one, tweet me at Oliver Henry Roth. You can find the O'Henry Report on BroadwayWorld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Basically, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts, we're there. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>